Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. As you're turning, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning as we look at the Word of God, Pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to, again, understand it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, just, in our hearts, be able to apply it so we can use it in our lives. Pray, Lord, that, again, we would get a glimpse of you that we have not yet re- received. And as we consider this passage of Scripture, please, Lord, build in us an understanding of the importance of knowing the Word of God and accurately dividing the Scriptures so we can be workmen who need not to be ashamed. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, before I get there, we're going to start in verse number 18 of chapter 12. Uh, I have already, uh, it's already been a long day for Jesus uh, in our passage today. It is still Tuesday of the Passion Week, uh, and it has been one wave after another slamming against Jesus. With each wave, Jesus is showing his knowledge, his wisdom, his his authority, that uh, those things about him cannot be rivaled by men by any high political or religious bodies of his day or of any day. Uh, And so now we come to a different religious group uh, that has another question for Jesus in our passage. And the question they come to ask seemed to have been used against the Pharisees. The religious group is called the Sadducees. Look at verse number 18. It says, some Sadducees, a different kind of uh, religious group. This was a group that was uh, very wealthy. They were connected uh, both politically to Herod and religiously to the Sanhedrin. They had a lot of say, a lot of power. And so this group is going to take their chance now against Jesus. And um, they were considered, actually, Sadducees were considered to be theological conservatives, while the Pharisees are considered to be theological progressives. Now the reason for this distinction is that the Sadducees believed differently than the Pharisees, For example, the Sadducees affirmed the free will of man alone, and and the Pharisees did not. The the Sadducees accepted only the Torah. That's the first five books of Moses, of our Bible. The Pharisees also accepted the Torah, the Psalms, the writings, and the prophets. And they also used the Mishnah, or the oral tradition, 
as a reliable source to guide in their spiritual life. The Sadducees did not believe in angels and demons. The Pharisees affirmed both angels and demons. And the Sadducees outright denied the resurrection, while the Pharisees affirmed the resurrection. Now, this Lord's Day, consider this, that a person or a group of people can be very, very religious, very zealous about the truth and what they believe, and yet be completely wrong with the truth. And that's what we see in our passage here. We see this group of people, of course, their motives are wrong for coming to Jesus. The reason why they wanted to come to him is to trip him up. But nonetheless, how Jesus deals with them and how the the narrative breaks down this morning. So the first thing I want you to see about these theological conservatives called the Sadducees is that they had a wrong idea specifically about the life to come. They had a wrong idea about the life to come. Now, if you notice in verse number 18, it says, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. So right in the beginning of the narrative, we get the sense of what's happening here. The the doctrine of resurrection is the main issue in this passage. The The historical book of Acts is pretty explicit when describing the belief system of this influential religious group. It simply says this in Acts 23, verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. So that's what they believed. And of course, they were the opponents of not only Jesus, they were the opponents of the Pharisees. See, the Sadducees believed that at death, the soul perished along with the body and that there was no future rewards or punishments. They concluded this way because the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, so they believed, uh, was what they believed is that it didn't teach the the resurrection because the Torah was shadowy and not explicit about any of those things. And so they believed that the doctrine of resurrection contradicted actually the teaching of the Torah. Now, on a funny note, some would say this group did not believe in the resurrection, because this group did not believe in the resurrection, that is why they were sad, you see. Oh, boy. Anyway, this group had their own bag of tricks, which, which really uh, included devious questions. Uh, and of course, this is what this, uh, this is what our passage says they did. Verse number 18, it says, some, some Sadducees who say there's no erection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying something. Uh, and I'll pick that up again just in a minute. See, they believed that their question was based 
on the teaching of the Torah, remember, first five books of the Bible, and that in regard, especially in regard to the resurrection, and they believed that it could only be answered in their favor. They were so convinced about that. See, they presented Jesus with a tricky conundrum. A conundrum is a confusing and difficult problem or a question, a question asked for either amusement or to trick someone. It could be used as a pun or it could be used as a riddle. So some say that the Sadducees created what is called a reductio ad absurdum. Now, that is an argument reducing things to the absurd or to the ridiculous. In other words, they were trying to get Jesus to look ridiculous. That this whole talk about the afterlife and about the spiritual realm and about miracles and about something like resurrection is absolutely absurd. And they do it by proving it from Scripture. So the Sadducees kind of asked the question to Jesus in the form of a riddle. They based their question in the Mosaic law concerning the leveret marriage. Leveret meaning brother-in-law. Specifically, the responsibility of a brother to take the childless wife of his deceased brother and make sure his brother's line does not die out. Now look at verse number 19. It says this in Mark. Teacher, this is Mark chapter 12, verse 19. Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. All right, so the Sadducees address Jesus here in a very smug, with a very smug attitude and call him teacher, thinking we will see what kind of teacher you are after you are presented this complex question, this riddle, if you're able to answer it. And if you're not, or if you answer it in either way, it's going to show that you're an inept teacher. Now, was this thought of the leveret marriage based in the first five books of Moses? Well, yes, it was. And to show you, I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and just look at a few passages there, right? Also, it's, it's taught in Genesis and it's taught in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is more of, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means second, this is more of an explanation of the details of the law, how it's worked out practically. It says this in Genesis 38. It says, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So let's look at it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse number 5 and 6. It says this, When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. 
her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now, of course, that's based on also if a person's willing to do that. So the thought again is that the purpose of this practice was to raise up a seed in the name of the deceased and enable the family name and line to continue also, though, to make certain that he had a legal heir so that the ancestral lands would be passed down to that son that was born uh, and carry on, of course, from one generation to the next. Preserving the name, preserving the inheritance was the main thing that was important there. All right, so that's the bottom line. It was based in uh, the five books of Moses. uh, And so that's now, let's look at the riddle. Let's look at how it breaks down in verses 20 to 23. See, the story, if you're, as soon as you read the story, you'll find that the story is, is filled with a lot of information. It's almost overkill. Well, look what it says there. In verse number 20, all right, here, now, here it is. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. So here we have number one, brother number one, all right, dies. Uh, the first brother married a wife, died, and left no children. Secondly, the second brother, verse 21, and the second one married her, died, leaving behind no children. Again, of course, the second brother married a wife, died, left no children. And then verse 21, also it says a third And likewise, a third, all right? The third brother married a wife, died, and left no children. And this, of course, went on four more times, saying the same thing, that the fourth brother married a wife, died, and left no children. The fifth brother married a wife, died, and left no children. The sixth brother married a wife, the wife died, and uh, left no children. The seventh brother married the wife, Uh, and left no offspring, it says in verse 22. And so all seven left no children. Now, so this is the riddle that is placed before Jesus. Um, As I said, the Sadducees had figured this out. They had used this against the Pharisees. The Pharisees had no answer. Nobody had an answer for this question. So they thought... um, We're just going to use it against Jesus. In verse number 22, notice what it says, and last of all, the woman died also. Now, here comes the trickiness and the force of the question, verse 23. It says, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So you remember, marriage involves bodies, and resurrection brings back the bodies again to life. All seven brothers had her as a wife. 
will all seven brothers be her husband? Or will only one be her husband? And if so, which one? Of course, that is a very difficult question to answer. Nobody could answer that question. Why? We don't know what happens in the afterlife. All right? And in fact, the Sadducees didn't believe there was an afterlife. So see, definitely it was tricky. And after making the Pharisees a laughing stock with this story, Jesus, of course, is their victim. It was suggested that the use of seven brothers could have reference to the completeness or their perfection of the story. The Sadducees really thought they had Jesus cornered with this riddle. They really did. The riddle tried to show that some basic belief, like resurrection, cannot be true because of its implications. Its implications would be ridiculous. See, the woman in the riddle dies, having no children from all seven husbands, and according to the Sadducees, she couldn't claim one of the seven brothers as her husband in eternity, especially if they had no children. He couldn't carry on his name. He couldn't claim his inheritance. There was no claim to it. So then, of course, according to Moses, the resurrection to the Sadducees in this regard would be absurd. It would be absolutely ridiculous to think that. Of course, their conclusion is, See, there's no resurrection. There's no afterlife. This is the end. This is, it's over when you die. So the point would be that if one of the brothers would have produced children in the Leverett marriage, that, would, that means the whole thing would cease as far as the resurrection is concerned, and the claim could be set up that she was the brother's wife in the hereafter if one of them have children, because then the name would be preserved and the inheritance could be claimed. So the Sadducees had presented an impossible situation. They are certain there is no resurrection, and they think they have proved it by using Moses' teaching from the Torah as scriptural proof. They had surmised that whichever answer given, either you deny the Torah and the teaching of Moses or you deny the doctrine of resurrection. See, there's the conundrum. They're caught. They're caught in a situation. Uh, the person trying to answer the question is caught. So the Pharisees couldn't answer it. Nobody else could answer it. So they thought neither is Jesus going to answer it. Well, how wrong they were. Because you know what Jesus does? He always takes wrong ideas about things and corrects them. Right? And how does he do it? He corrects them with truth. In fact, he's going to correct them with the law of Moses. See, the second thing that we would consider is that the wrong idea about the life to come is going to be challenged by the word of God, by scripture, and that's exactly what takes place. The challenge is toward their ignorant 
folly and their self-deception. I love when Jesus just smacks them right between the eyes. When they think they're smug and they have him cornered, he's not cornered at all. What Jesus' opponents did not realize is that they have made a grave mistake. The Sadducees committed logical fallacy by assuming something to be true when it is in fact false. This is what our Lord Jesus very abruptly brings to the attention of his opponents. Look at verse number 24. It says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken? What? We don't make mistakes. We're Pharisees. We proved it from the scriptures. See, this is where all our problems usually start. We fail to understand what is written in the word of God, and we come to wrong conclusions. See, what the Sadducees claim to know best, the five books of Moses, and that's it, they knew least. And Jesus brings it to their attention. He throws it right in their face because the Sadducees accepted only the Torah, the first five books of, the, of Moses, and did not accept the fuller revelation of God found in the Psalms and the writings and the prophets. They remained deceived about the supernatural realm. They remained deceived about angels, about demons, about the afterlife, about resurrection. And it goes to say that if a person goes wrong in Scripture, that person will also go astray in the heart and center of their belief about God. It goes together. You get Scripture wrong, you get God wrong, you get God wrong, you get it all wrong. So what does Jesus do? He, of course, says, listen, you are not only ignorant and self-deceived and so draw false conclusions concerning the spiritual, but you are also ignorant and self-deceived, so draw conclusions concerning God's... Concerning Scripture, verse 24, notice what it says. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaking that you do not understand the Scriptures? See, again, they didn't understand really the word of God because they didn't really receive the whole of divine revelation. But also, they were ignorant concerning the power of God. Notice again in verse number 24, not only do they not understand the scriptures, the last part of the verse, or the power of God. See, they had a small view of God. So they think God would and could Actually, their view of God was so small to even think that God would or could raise the dead is inconceivable to them. And so their view of God is distorted. Their understanding of Scripture is wrong. And so Jesus now takes their wrong idea about the afterlife and now he corrects it. And how does he do that? Well, he does it also by exposing their ignorant and self-deceived conclusions about heaven. See, they fail to correctly understand 
So assume in the afterlife, the same conditions prevail that are used on the earth today. They mistakenly assume that there will be marriage in the afterlife. And what is interesting about the next passage in verse number 25 is this. It completely shows that Jesus himself has knowledge that only God could have. He has knowledge that only one could have if they were in heaven. Look what he says to them in verse number 25. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So he's saying, sorry guys, sex, marriage, reproduction, childbirth, and any mosaic laws pertaining to these are not valid in the life to come. Why? Because children of the resurrection, in verse 25, notice what it says, they are like angels in heaven. Who would know that? This is new information that's coming from Jesus for the first time and blows these guys right out of the water, right? We're going to be like angels? See, our bodies will not be discarded, and there will be a great difference in the life to come from this present earthly life. Resurrection bodies will be like angels. What does that mean? It means that the children of the resurrection never die. So they no longer need to marry in order to replenish the race. Also, children of the resurrection will be a fixed and a complete number like angels. So they, there's no need for the succession of children. So... Jesus answers the question that no one else could answer. He answers it as actually someone who has knowledge that no one else has knowledge of, and Jesus shuts their mouth. But you know what? They really didn't ask that question. (laughs) But Jesus gave information to us that is very, very important for us to know. What's going to happen when we die? What's going to be on the other side? He's giving us, he's, 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 he's opening up the curtain, allowing us to look in. It's not going to be like now. It's going to be different. Yeah, we're going to have bodies, but they're going to be resurrected. Uh, and we will never die again. And we'll, we won't have to reproduce because we'll be like the angels who don't have to reproduce. There's a, they're a fixed number. There's going to be a fixed number. No more reproduction in the eternal state with the Lord, with our resurrected bodies. But, of course, Jesus is not done with them yet. He says, therefore, you're you're ignorant and you're self-deceived and you draw false conclusions. Now I'll get to it about the resurrection. So Jesus could have gone to many passages of Scripture to prove the doctrine of resurrection from the Old Testament. He could have gone to Daniel chapter 12 
Verse 2, where it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But, of course, the Sadducees didn't believe the prophet, so didn't use that passage. Or Jesus could have used passages from the Torah, like Genesis 5.24, it's where it says Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Remember, Enoch didn't die, he was translated. Of course, this is not language of resurrection here, but rapture and the power of God that takes a person from one life to another life without going through the door of death. Or Jesus could have gone to Genesis chapter 22 and verse number Five, when God told Abraham, go offer your only son as a sacrifice on the altar. And of course, it tells us that Abraham said to the young men who went with him, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. Meaning that it implies that Abraham's belief in the power of God and either the resuscitation or the resurrection of his only son, Isaac, would happen. Of course, in that case, the Lord supplied a substitute, a lamb, that would die in the place of Isaac. Or Jesus could have mentioned the three times already in his three-year ministry in which he talked about the resurrection. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 31, 9, 31, and 10, 34, and be killed, and after three days rise again. But Jesus does not go to any of those passages of scriptures. Instead, he goes to the part of scripture which the Sadducees themselves should have been familiar with and held as divinely inspired. Where does he go to? He goes to Genesis chapter 3, verse number 5 and 6. All right, now, look what it says in your, right here in Matthew. It's a quote from that passage in Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 26. It says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush? Let me go to, you, to one of the most basic passages. Matter of fact, the first time Moses actually hears the voice of God. He stands there with sandals on his feet, and God says, take off your sandals for the ground that you stand on is holy ground. And God begins to speak to Moses from a bush that burned but was not consumed. This is, this is the most basic and central passage of Scripture in the Torah about what God says to Moses. And that's where Jesus goes to. He goes to that particular passage of Scripture. Actually, in a a way, the Lord's being very kind with his opponents. He's being very gentle with them. He's saying this, listen, okay, you guys hold first five books of Moses. All right, let's go to to what Moses, uh, how God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. But notice what he says in verse number 26. He says, have you not read it? Hey, you guys, have you read your Bibles? Do you read your Bibles? Could the Lord say the same thing to us on issues of, in our own life? Haven't you read? You have the Bible in your hand. No one's pr- 
stopping you from reading and studying the word of God, from hearing the truth. No one's stopping you. No one's stopping you at all. No one's coming to your house and taking your Bibles from you. No one's preventing you from doing that. Haven't you read? You say you're a Christian. You say you believe the Bible. You say that you love the word of God. Have you read it? Are you reading it? Are you thinking about it? Are you properly handling it and interpreting it? See, that's the question not only for these guys, for all of us. Have you read what you said that you know? This is what it says in Exodus chapter 3. Don't turn there. It says this, Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. See, the patriarchs were long dead when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And what does Jesus specifically specifically draw our attention to? He draws our attention to the way in which God speaks of himself. Notice in our passage right here in Mark, verse 26, it says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he says this very specifically, I am not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken by what you believe. That's what he tells them. So God said during the time of Moses, the patriarchs were very much alive. God had to have raised them from the dead with resurrection power, raised to spiritual resurrection by believing in God, and that was accounted to them for righteousness. And then, of course, awaiting the resurrection of the body. We're all awaiting the resurrection of the body. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God, which demanded a continual living relationship with God after death. See, God does not make an everlasting covenant or a promise to save his people if it were or his people were overcome by the devastation of death. That's why on the cross, Jesus not only defeated Satan, but he defeated death, our greatest enemy. So death could never have a hold on us. So death could never take away our name written in the Lamb's book of life. So death could never rob us of the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Death cannot do that. So Jesus says to them, he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken. See, God must be the God of living people. He is not the God of dead people. 
See, he's saying to them, you got scripture wrong, you got God wrong, there will be a resurrection. It will happen. And so for you and I, if we think of that for a moment, Jesus just opened the door for us to peek into heaven that your body and my body will be resurrected, not just our soul, but our bodies will. And that, of course, your individuality will be preserved in eternity. See, we will be more recognizable, more lovable in heaven than we ever were before here on earth. Our Kent Hughes had said that there will be no marriage in heaven and no concern about past husbands and wives. But that does not suggest in the slightest a reduction in love. We will be ourselves at our ultimate best. We will be more delightful, more capable of loving than ever before when we are in resurrected bodies. We can't even imagine in, in our state right now how it's going to be, but Jesus wants us to imagine. He wants us to give us a sense that, no, listen, this, the life in heaven with, with God and you and your new bodies will be completely different, and God, by his power, is able to pull it off. See, we will recognize each other. Some people always ask me that, you know, will we know each other in heaven? Yeah. But everything will be perfect. You will be perfect in heaven. You may not like some things about yourself right now, and that's probably true. Uh, you may not like each, some things about each other right now, but, and that is true too. But in heaven, we will be perfect. See, our bodies will be glorious, grown to their eternal potentials. Our personalities will be at their fullest and finest. Our wits will be endowed with a deep understanding of the knowledge of God. Our charm and love will be pure and noble and beautiful and splendid. In other words, we'll be like Jesus. We'll be like Jesus. See, those who died in Christ before our Lord's return will be resurrected at his coming. Their bodies, which have been buried, decayed, and returned to the dust, will be resurrected to life. It does not matter how long they have been dead and gone. God will create their bodies out of nothing, out of whatever he does when that happens. Their bodies will be changed. Our bodies will be changed. Christians who have died will have a body like Jesus' resurrection body, a body that will not age, a body that will not decay, a body that has no pain or sorrow, a body that does not cry, a body that will never die. It will be a body fit for the presence of God and fit for all eternity. See, Jesus, when he rose from the grave, he ate, he walked with his disciples. His body was fit for earth as well as it is fit for heaven, so will ours be. We'll, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and our bodies will be fit for both. 
and there'll be no separation between us and God. We will have complete access to him. We will have inheritances that we couldn't even dream of obtaining on our own, and it's all because we have believed in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We believed in the one who died in our place, who paid the full price for our sin, who satisfied the justice of the Father, who turned his wrath away from us, and who, of course, shed his blood to wash away our sin. So the thing that we need to be concerned about and think about is that Jesus not only announces the resurrection to these guys, he is the resurrection. For Jesus says, it says in John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, speaking to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And of course, here's the question. Do you believe this? Have you read the scripture? Do you believe this? All right? If you don't believe it, well, then the consequences are evident. That you will spend eternity, yes, in a resurrected body, but away from God, in a place, an eternal place called the lake of fire. But remember, we're getting there in Mark. The empty tomb proves it also. For it says in Mark 16, 6, and he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. See, Jesus, we know, did rise from the grave, and he is the first fruits of all those who will be raised from the grave and given a resurrected body to live in his glorious presence for all eternity. See, that is the hope that we have. That's why we don't need to be in despair, that we don't need to fret about everything that's going on in the world. We don't even need to fret about the day in which we will die. That is in God's hands, right? But to be ready in our minds with this truth is, is, is vitally important. This is true. This will take place. But there are still those people who say, well, I don't really know if there's a resurrection. I don't really know. See, Jesus is the resurrected God of the living. When we believe him for eternal salvation, that leads to following him and learning his word, which leads to serving him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, which leads to living with him forever. See, the taste of heaven we're going to receive, we receive it now on earth. Just a taste. And when you get a little taste of something that's really good, you know what you want? You want more. So the more you get scripture in your mind to transform you, the greater appetite you have for heaven and the more you want to go there to be with the Lord and the more you want to spend eternity with him. But that means also, too, that we need to live for him while we're here. And I pray that you are doing that. 
I pray that you are reading the scripture with understanding. I pray that you do believe this. I pray that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior, and that's the only way to be saved, be right, be made right with God. And I pray that you're living for him, and you are moving forward to the day when we'll be with the Lord forever. I pray that for us. I really do. That's the great concern. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do ask you and, and pray that, Lord, you would take these scriptures and that you would really nail them to our minds. So, Lord, that we would be very conscious of what we believe. And then I pray, Lord, that our, our belief would come out of a sound understanding of scripture. I pray, Lord, our conclusions would be Conclusions that come about because we rightly divided the word of God. But I pray, Lord, that when we come to those conclusions, we not only just believe that we have the truth, but I pray, Lord, that they would uh, change our lifestyle. They would change our thinking. They would change everything about what we do. And I pray, Lord Jesus, especially this truth, that this life is not the end that there is a life to come. And that life to come will be completely different than what we know now. But the same person we believed in here will be the same person who will be there, leading the way, being the Lord and Savior that he always has been, and that we will worship him and praise him and enjoy presence with him forever. I pray that would be on our minds, Lord, day in and day out. So, Lord, comfort us today with these truths and change us by them. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the men who are serving, you can come forward. Remember, we have our Lord's table right now. And, of course, when we think about the Lord's table, we should think about several things, that it does declare our obedience uh, it's commanded by the Lord.